Uh, There aren't many areas of life where contest, competition, conflict, even combat aren't involved. Uh, Business, politics, sports, there are opponents to overcome. Uh, Families and friendships, there are rivalries to endure. Uh, Medicine and health are about battling for funding and fighting against a disease. Uh, Lawyers and courts are adversarial. Uh, Education and the arts are judging winners and losers. Uh, It seems that if in life, if it is important, uh, you have to struggle against other people who think differently. Uh, No one generally has to survive in a war zone to engage in a hobby, a part-time interest, an amusement. Uh, Collecting stamps or growing roses, they're not provoking too much hostility or animosity. But if it's important, if it's on the big scale, if it's a critical issue, there is often conflict and struggle. Karl Marx famously described a social, political, economic world as a struggle between those at the top with power and those at the bottom who are oppressed. That's his picture of life, a struggle. I wonder how do you see spirituality, religion, Christianity? Uh, Do you anticipate and expect that your Christian faith will be characterized by struggle and conflict, opposition and hostility? Or is your default assumption that your Christian faith is, it's a peace zone. It's a place of tranquility and serenity and harmony. It's more like the stamp collecting or the growing of roses. According to the Apostle Paul in our passage this morning, uh, your Christian faith is both of those, with one qualification. Now, in this world, we should be prepared for struggle and battle. Then... In the world to come, oh, then we should expect serenity and contentment. Now, Paul says, many live as enemies of the cross. Then, oh, then the Lord Jesus will bring everything under his control. Now, the apostle wants Christians to hold both realities. Verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. See, we are here and now already citizens of heaven even while we look forward to a day when our lowly bodies will be transformed. Uh, we've seen in this letter to the apostle, from the Apostle Paul uh, some uncertainty about his future, but, but the key verse comes in chapter 1, verse 27. We've looked at it several times. Uh, whatever happens, whatever happens to him, you conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Uh, Paul wants this church uh, that's been a, a real supporter and encouragement to him, this church that's been a partner with him in the gospel, Paul wants this good church to keep on living out gospel priorities. And he says that's going to mean two important things for them. They need to strive together as one for the faith of the gospel. That is, they need to be united. And then the second thing they need to do is they need to stand firm in one spirit without being frightened by opposition because advancing the cause of the gospel together will provoke opposition. 
Now, chapter 2, we looked at it. uh, Paul focused on the need for unity within the church in order to advance the gospel. And here in chapter 3, Paul drills down on the need for the church to hold its ground despite opposition. Uh, If the church at Philippi is going to have the baton passed on to them by the apostle, they'll need to factor in the reality of opponents and hostility towards the gospel. Uh, As we saw last week, chapter 3 is introduced as an instruction to safeguard the church, chapter 3, verse 1, and then chapter 3 is summarized as the way to stand firm in the Lord, chapter 4, verse 1. And in the middle, verse 15, Paul says that he is showing the believers what it means to be mature Christians. So safety, maturity, standing firm, these are what's needed in the face of those who are hostile and antagonistic towards the gospel. Uh, Paul tells the Philippians to deal with the opponents of the gospel by uh, verses 1 to 11 we looked at last week, embracing the good news of a righteousness that comes from God by faith, and verses 12 to 16 by pressing on in even deeper into the relationship with the Lord Jesus. And in our section this morning, he adds on two things, modeling our faith on the right people and remembering where our hope comes from. Let's look at each of those in turn. Firstly, uh, modelling our faith on the right people. Uh, Verse 17, chapter 3, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, just as you have uh, us as a model. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. I think it's hard to underestimate how important uh, models and examples are in the Christian life. Uh, God has woven into the very fabric of creation the reality of people as patterns. Uh, People made in God's image and then people who are themselves made in the image of those who came before them. Adam and Eve made in God's image. Adam and Eve's children made in their image. Children grow up watching and learning from their parents and then those children become parents. And others watch and learn from them and the cycle begins all over again. A generation is learning from a pattern of old while at the same time being an example to an up-and-coming generation. It's part of the New Testament's approach to the Christian life. Old men teach younger men. Older women teach younger women. Our church leaders are to set an example for the believers in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. In everything... Set them an example by doing what is good. And of course, Jesus is the supreme model. Uh, Peter puts it this way Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And even in this letter to the Philippians, back in chapter 2, Paul points to Jesus as our example. Chapter 2, verse 5 In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Copy his pattern as you relate to one another. Uh, The Bible is a book chock full of people who are examples. The Apostle Paul can summarize the experience of all the Old Testament people like this. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, New Testament believers. Now, whether the people were good or bad, we can learn from them as models of what to do or what not to do. It's another reason why 
you need to be actively part of a church congregation. So you are sitting next to living, breathing examples of how to live out the Christian life. Older believers you can learn from, younger disciples who can learn from you. We need each other as models on how to live the Christian life or, or how not to live the Christian life. And no one is exempt from being a model, as humble and unworthy as you think you are, uh, as a pattern for Christian life. You are nevertheless a model, an example. Uh, someone is watching you. Your Christian life is an example that others are influenced by, for good or ill. The people who are near and dear to you, they see your strengths and weaknesses in your Christianity. You are an example, whether you want to be or not. Now, following examples and being examples is the general pattern for the Christian life. But here in this letter to the Philippians, Paul is calling the believers to follow his example in a very specific way. Uh, Paul is asking the believers to use him and his companions as models for dealing with opponents of the Christian faith. Uh, And this letter is full of examples of Paul and his co-workers when they are confronted with hostility and animosity. Uh, Back in chapter 1, Paul talked about his response to the rivals who preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Again, while he awaits trial in front of Caesar, he wants to be a good example in that confrontational situation. I, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. In chapter 2, Paul points to Timothy, but you know uh, that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he served with me in the work of the gospel. And then the example of Epaphroditus, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honour people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give. And again, in chapter 3, we looked at it last week, Paul uses himself as an example of someone who has put aside all his privileges as a Jew and endured the hostility and opposition that comes with that. He considered all of that worthless. No, instead, he's pressing on to know Christ deeply. Uh, Paul has had a lot of experience dealing with hostility towards the Christian faith. And so he urges the believers, learn from him, copy him, duplicate his approach. Because if we as believers are not modelling and patterning our lives on good examples like Paul and his co-workers, then we will be shaped and conforming our lives to the bad examples. Of course, no one consciously looks for, oh, there's a bad example. I will pattern my life on them so that I can mess things up like they, they do. Now, the problem is that the bad guys make themselves look like good guys. See, with great confidence and boldness, they will tell believers that their way is the true path to godliness and acceptance before the Lord. With impressive dedication and strict discipline, they will say, copy our pattern precisely, make the sacrifices we make, and you too can share in a superior Christian experience. 
with insider's knowledge, they will invite you to enter into the essential rituals, the holy rites that will mark you out as one of God's special people. Uh, With careful precision and detailed instruction, they will tell you how to respond to each and every situation that you will face in your day-to-day life. Theirs is a practical spirituality for here and now. They hold themselves out as Jesus people, worthy examples as people to emulate and copy. Look at us, be like us, follow our pattern. Uh, They are like those people who you see on those uh, border patrol programs. You know, they're they're lining up, they're going to go through customs and they've filled in their cards, nothing to declare. No food, no drugs, no animal products, no guns, clean as a whistle. And they look capable and confident. They they look respectable and honest. But then you see their bags go through the x-ray machine. And when the operator, you know, stops the screen and he says, you know what I can see? You know what he can see? Verse 19. Oh, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Uh, What Paul gives us in this passage is the x-ray view of these people. Now, see, you go back and you check their customs declaration form. They say, destiny, heaven, tick. Scrupulous obedience to God's law, tick. Faithful descendants of Abraham, tick. Mindset on obeying God, tick. Uh, You've ticked all these boxes, but when we x-ray what you're promoting and urging other believers, we can see, actually, your example leads to hell. Your destiny is destruction. Uh, you're so fanatical about only eating kosher food, your God is your stomach. Uh, you're so pleased with being circumcised and so absorbed with the need for other people to be circumcised, your glory is uh, an unmentionable part, body parts. Uh, and you're so preoccupied with all the rites and rituals of what people should be doing here and now, your mind is set on earthly things. I'm sorry but you're trying to enter church with a friend of Jesus visa when actually you should be registered as an enemy of the cross of Christ. Uh, It's my job and it's your job to do the controversial and the confrontational thing of cancelling that person's visa, denying them entry, putting them on the next plane back to wherever it is that they came from. Uh, Every day, thousands and thousands of people pass through New Zealand customs and immigration entry points, and the vast majority are welcomed into the country. But every day there are those who are fined for bringing in forbidden items. And then the very rare, the few that are rightly turned away at the border. Churches have a border and immigration checkpoint. It's called church membership. And the vast majority of people move through that process without issue. Oh, sometimes we come across people who are carrying, let's say, forbidden fruit, something that they might bring in that would actually damage the church. They're often unaware, you know, the sniffer dog has sniffed something out and no, there's nothing in there. Oh, 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 yeah, there's a piece of fruit. Where did that come from? They're often unaware of the potential danger of importing that doctrine or that teaching into church life. But once they've recognized it and appropriately disposed of it, they can enter in. 
on very rare occasions, someone can seek formal entry into church membership when they don't have a proper visa. They aren't actually a citizen. Jesus isn't their sovereign. In that situation, churches need a membership border immigration checkpoint for their good and for our good. For citizens who are doing the right thing, uh, queuing up for customs and immigration, filling out all those forms and paperwork, can seem a bit of a drag, but aren't we glad as citizens that uh, the government is protecting our national border? Well, likewise, any formalities around church membership might seem like a bit of a drag, but isn't it better for everyone if potential problems are identified and addressed at the earliest stage? Doesn't that help and protect everyone? See, no one is helped if they're welcomed in and treated like a citizen, but they're not a citizen. Best they work it out right at the beginning. And then apply for the appropriate visa. Go through the right way. Become a true citizen. See, we can't be naive, says Paul, uh, verse 18. For as I've often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Not a few, but rather many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, Paul isn't talking about the non-Christian world. Of course, they don't know about Jesus. They don't understand Jesus. The gospel makes no sense to them. Rather, Paul is talking about people who call themselves Christians, people who move in church circles, but who are actually enemies of the cross of Christ. And the apostle says that there are many who claim to be Christians, but are actually no such thing. Their version of Christianity is actually an attack on the cross. They are opponents of the gospel. They are enemies of Christ. Now, when Paul writes this letter, Christianity is less than 30 years old. They are, in terms of the sort of percentage of the Roman population of the day, there are very few Christians in the world. Uh, There are still apostles living and writing, traveling and teaching. Uh, There are still people alive who have heard Jesus in the flesh, preaching and teaching. There are still people alive who have met the resurrected Jesus. Surely if any group could get Christianity off to a good start, it would have been that first generation of believers and churches. But Paul writes, amongst the people calling themselves Christians in his day, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, if we roll forward 2,000 years to here and now, with billions on the planet calling themselves Christians, with all the different brands and denominations of Christianity, all the different countries and cultural expressions of Christianity, with all those hundreds and hundreds of years for crazy ideas to develop, are we really going to say that actually we think things are much better now than they were in the first century? Are we really going to say that We think that there aren't that many people who call themselves Christians but actually live as enemies of the cross. Are we really going to say that the third of Kiwis who tick the census box as Christians but never have anything to do with a Christian church, are we really going to say that they aren't setting a destructive example that is working against the cause of Christ in our country? Does that sound combative? 
Does that sound confrontational? Well, good, because no one is helped by pretending that all is well as the ship slowly sinks. Uh, The Apostle Paul is calling the Philippians and all churches to model ourselves on Paul and his co-workers. And it saddened him deeply that there were people who were mistakenly claiming to be Christians when they weren't. Here's Jesus speaking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the ones under the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Uh, Paul was sad because lost people thought they were saved and they weren't. And Paul was sad because lost people who think they are Christians are a danger to real Christians. That's why Paul is writing to the Philippians, telling them to watch out for these people. Keep yourself safe from them. Be mature. Recognize them. Stand firm against them. Paul wants believers to model our faith on the right people. That's the path to safety, maturity, and endurance. Uh, Secondly, Paul wants believers to remember where our hope comes from. Uh, Verse 20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Uh, One of the ways that believers stay safe in hostile situations, uh, one of the ways that Christians grow in maturity in the face of false teaching, one of the ways that disciples stand firm before opponents is by being very clear about who we are and what the future holds. Uh, In contrast to the many enemies of the cross of Christ, Paul says that the Philippian believers need to remember what they are, who they are right now. They are citizens of heaven. Uh, We've talked in previous weeks about how special the idea was to the Philippians. Uh, Everyone born in Philippi, a city in northern Greece, was automatically a citizen of Rome in Italy. And with that came all the privileges and honour of being a Roman citizen, even though they lived in Greece. Well, how much more does it mean for believers right now to be citizens here of heaven? All the privileges, all the honour of being citizens of heaven belong to each and every believer now. Of course, having citizenship means we already know how things will go with customs and immigration entry into heaven. We are already citizens. We've got right of entry. Our true home is heaven. That's where we belong. In a very real sense, we are living in a foreign country. We are expatriates of heaven. This world and its anti-God customs, oh, that's not who we are anymore. And if we are clear about our citizenship in heaven, if you've got citizenship in heaven, who's going to give you a better deal? Make you a better offer? Who's going to persuade you that they can take you on a better path to God? I'm already a citizen of heaven. 
Who's going to convince you that you know, this diet or these meditation exercises or giving money to that cause, that's going to open the doors for you for heaven? I've got the passport for heaven. Who's going to assure you that these religious rituals will mark you out as different in this world? I'm already a citizen of heaven. I'm very different from everybody here. Who's going to claim that their practical spiritually for this life is more important than the life to come? I'm a citizen of heaven. Now, our citizenship of heaven reminds us that our ultimate allegiance is sure. Jesus is our sovereign. He is our king. He sits on the throne of heaven. Who we are, it's sorted. More than that, that king is coming here again. The saviour who has come and died and has been raised from the dead and given power and authority over all things, again back to Philippians chapter 2, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, when King Jesus comes in all his glory and splendor, he will bring everything under his control. That is, the Lord Jesus will renew and repair and rebuild this broken world. We are not going to do that now. He is going to do that then. All that we can't do, all that we won't do, he will do in resurrecting this world. If that's who we are waiting for and what he will do, who is going to persuade you away from serving Jesus' big gospel agenda for the world? And what Jesus will do on a grand and global scale, he will do on a personal level. He will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. If Jesus is going to give his people resurrection bodies, bodies fit for eternity, bodies like his glorious resurrected body, who's going to convince you that this body, this is the all, the be-all and the end-all of all things? Who's going to convince you that actually you have to overcome all your frailties and weaknesses and disabilities now? As we read time and time again in the New Testament, convictions about the future... And what Jesus promises, that gives us clarity about what we will do and how we will live now. And in this particular context, those convictions about the future that Jesus will bring will keep us safe from enemies of the cross, will fuel our maturity to press on even into a deeper relationship with Jesus, will energize our determination to stand firm in the teachings and doctrines of the faith. Paul wants believers to model our faith on the right people and Paul wants believers to remember where our hope comes from because these are the means by which believers stay safe, grow in maturity, stand firm in the faith. But at the end of the day, safety, maturity, standing firm will only be important to you if you see the danger if you recognise the risk, if you understand there are opponents of the gospel. See, remember that Paul is warning us about people who claim to be Christian but actually are enemies of the cross. Where do those people come from, these enemies of the cross? I'll tell you where they come from today. 
They come from gospel churches, from evangelistic churches, from living churches who are enthusiastic about Jesus. They come from good churches like Philippi or Hastings Baptist or loads of other good churches. Somewhere along the way, these people get tripped up, sidetracked, derailed, and they leave a good gospel church because, oh, they all meant well, but they're a bit simplistic and naive. Oh, they didn't have answers for all my questions. Oh, they're too harsh or they're too soft. Oh, they're, they're kind of too top-down and dictatorial. No, they're, they're sort of too bottom-up and democratic. They have too many rules. Oh, I don't think they're disciplined enough. Oh, they're Holy Spirit crazy. They aren't Spirit-filled. And on and on, whatever categories you want. And these people are persuaded by the contemporary equivalents of these enemies of the cross to go somewhere else join a church that isn't a church and themselves become enemies of the cross. See, that's the modern day tragedy. Uh, Liberal churches have no gospel, so they convert no people. Where do they get their people from? Oh, the disenfranchised, the annoyed, the frustrated. Liberal churches are continually topped up by people who've walked away from good gospel churches. Paul's warning is for believers in good churches. See the danger. Recognize the risk. Understand that there are opponents of the gospel. And so let's make staying safe in Christ, growing in gospel maturity and standing firm in the faith, our priority as Christians and as a church. Let's pray together. Father, we want to give you thanks that through the Lord Jesus we can stay safe, we can grow in the gospel, we can stand firm. We want to be a good church. Help us to be wise and godly in the way we act. Help us to recognise that there are opponents of the gospel, people who live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Help us not to be naive. Help us to engage truthfully. Lead us, we pray, forward to that great day when the Lord Jesus will return in power and glory. Comfort our hearts today with our citizenship of heaven. Hold forth us for us for the promises that are to come. Lowly bodies transformed to be like his glorious body. Amen.